Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animated video agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of video storytelling. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best videos your company has ever had. My guest today is Julian Serafian. Julian is a former graduate of Harvard Law School, UC Berkeley, and a former corporate attorney. He recently quit his job as an attorney to focus on mental health and explore content creation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Julian, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Pacifico. Happy to be here. I'm very excited. So take me back a little bit. Like, What first led you on your journey to law school and becoming a lawyer? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, I, I joke that, so I'm an Asian American, and I, and I joke that as an Asian American child, you kind of have three career options engineer, lawyer, or doctor, <laughs> you know, being the, the three stable, uh, financially secure professions, you know, in the modern era. <clears throat> As a kid, I was kind of interested in medicine, but over time, I kind of realized the medical track requires a lot of focus on really humanity and caring for other people. And I felt I, I cared, but I don't know if I would bet my life on it. So I thought law was a kind of a better fit. And I was interested in politics at the time. So this was back in high school. And, you know, once I made that decision my senior year of high school, it kind of just became a gamesmanship strategy, you know, strategizing to get into the best law school possible. So, I, you know, I attended Berkeley and I thought about, OK, the calculus of I need a good GPA, but what if I don't get into law school? I should probably do a major that can get me a job. So I majored in economics. And before you knew it, you know, three years went by at, at Cal and uh, I was accepted at NYU as a first year. Uh, and I applied early, so I attended there for my first year, and then from there, you know, did well, transferred over to Harvard afterwards. Uh, but that was the basic track, you know, it was interest in politics, business, and law, and it just kind of felt like a, a good mix of all three. And so then how did you find yourself on the track to become a corporate attorney? Yeah, so in law, and, you know, your listeners are probably aware of this, but in case they aren't, there's in general kind of two big... Uh, not components, but there's a dichotomy of what kind of law you want to practice, litigation or kind of transactional work. Litigation being you're in the courtroom, you're suing people, you know, the judge is hitting the gavel on the, on the stand, et cetera, et cetera. But transactional is more paperwork, pushing deals forward, being creative with contract drafting and things like that, of that nature. I was just more interested in that side of it. I, I'm a pretty non-confrontational person. <laughs> so the thought of litigating and going in front of someone and trying to outfox the other side, just kind of makes my anxiety, which was already bad, like through the roof. Um, but so it was, it was more, you know, I guess, uh, a process of elimination for me to do corporate work and coming out of law school, wanted to come out of California, you know, Silicon Valley has a ton of technology companies and clients. So it just kind of made sense to, to practice corporate work and explore that area and arena and working with entrepreneurs, you know, as my clients was also pretty fun. You know, you're seeing folks who are starting their companies in their garage and then you're helping them scale and then eventually IPO and go public if, if they're successful. So it's, it's also just kind of an exciting space to be in as a lawyer. And so how did that sort of excitement dwindle for you to the point that you decided to step away from life as a corporate attorney? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, there's pros and cons with every job, right? And corporate corporate law is great in a lot of ways. I, I just think the big law model, you know, I don't think many people would disagree. It's it's demanding. It's it's rigorous. You know, it's a lot of hours. You're on call more or less twenty four seven. You know, weekends are are not off limits. And after a bruising year, uh, you know, of the pandemic that I think all of us have been through to some extent, suffered through, uh, it came to a point where I realized that for me, the job was kind of acting as a means to an end, right? A, a way to make money, make the bank account number go bigger. And that's okay. That's, that's always been the case. Uh, but the excitement and the draw, like, like you said, kind of was overshadowed by the burnout from just honestly, the quarantine, the isolation, COVID, a lot of things, right? A lot of things that had nothing to do with the job, I would say, right? But unfortunately, the job didn't help. And so it, it came to a point where it, it just made sense for me to step away and focus on other things because I just didn't really see, didn't really see a future where I felt really happy and thrilled and excited, um, at least in that specific job at this time in my life, right? Again, I, I could go back, I'm not sure, but at least right now, it, it didn't feel like the right thing to do. So do you feel a motivation to help change that system a bit and change the way the legal industry operates and maybe like the way that they approach mental health or work-life balance or, you know, how they're actually managing like workflow? Yeah. I mean, I think to the extent I can do something, I, I have tried to, and and I will, you know, when I was at my old firm, I lobbied for us to get onto Ginger, which is this emotional wellness and emotional coaching app that any employee can get access to. And that was for me, incredibly helpful. Once we got access to it, it, it provided an outlet for me to have an emotional coach and have somebody to talk to about how rough things were. And honestly, uh, you know, having someone who can coach you in general is always helpful. Right. But I think right now more than ever, mental health coaching and, and emotional coaching is needed. So, you know, when I was there, I, I did it. I did what I could right now looking ahead, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think a fun employed corporate, former corporate associate has a, has a ton of sway in, in big law boardrooms. Right. Um, but to the extent my voice can help persuade minds, right. To the extent my story can get people to think differently to the extent people can see the path that I've drawn and be inspired to do something similar for themselves. And and, you know, at a macro level, all of these things culminating and maybe these firms changing their practices and maybe our profession going one step, you know, closer to the direction of humanity, all the better. Right. And all, all, I'm all for it. Right. But I'm definitely not uh, I'm not committing my life by any means to uh, <laughs> trying to fight the battle of of rejiggering the mental health world in law, because it's a I mean, it's a complicated beast and no one person is going to be able to fix that, let alone like even an army. You know, it's, it's going to take time. Oh, it's certainly a heavy lift. So you raised the issue of, uh, you know, some different technological interventions that you experience, and that was more focused on like wellness specifically. On the flip side, I'm wondering how you foresee technology, whether it's AI or, you know, things like e-discovery or things that can just kind of lighten the load. So it's not so much that like, oh, we have to have, uh, you know, a life coach app, but what about an app that actually just helps you do the job of being, right. you know, an associate. Yes, totally. I think that's a, it's a great point Pacifico. And there's a ton of work being done in, in that arena. I mean, when I was at the firm, I saw over the course of my couple of years, the technologies and the softwares that we would use would change and just make our jobs more efficient. Hopefully most of the time, fingers crossed <laughs> there were exceptions, right? But we're trending in the direction of things becoming easier on the attorney. Uh, and that is, that is objectively helpful, right? So I think the fact that now attorneys can hit a button to redline a document against another document and compare the changes, right? When in the old days, you would have to have a first year associate literally read every line of both documents and hand mark it up. Like Pacifico, if I had to do that, I would have quit my third day. <laughs> like, I don't know how props to these you know partners and, and folks out there who did that for years. I don't know how they did it. But I think in five, 10 years, people are going to say the same thing about our jobs today. You know, whether it's signature packet creation and sending them out to investors or project management or SEC research, uh, I think all, all directions and components of at least transactional law are going in a direction of tech-based entrepreneurialism, innovation, which lets the attorney learn different and more complicated things faster. 
which I think is a good thing, right? It doesn't change the workload demands. It doesn't change the pressures of the client service, but it changes, like you said, the, the minutiae minute to minute work that you're doing as a corporate attorney, which matters a lot, obviously, in the long term. Yeah, I think there's a really big issue that is, is I think is probably stronger, is probably a bigger issue in law than I've seen in other industries where as automation takes over, there's not a really good idea of like, what do we do now, right? So when you have these technologies where, okay, uh, I can replicate with an app the work of a first year associate uh, in litigation or transactional work. And then the law firm is like, well, what do I do with that first year associate now? Right. Like, do you automatically put yeah. them? Because there was like, on the one hand, there was like the dues paying element of the work right. you do in the first few years is just like, oh, when I was a first year associate in the 80s, like my life right. sucked. So like, I'm going to make your life suck. Right. Um, you know, I experienced the same thing in the army. And it's just like, this is dumb. Like, there's no reason for this. Like, you, you know, just because totally. you suffered through something, somebody else doesn't have to. And especially now that we have these different technologies where it's like, okay, you don't need a first year associate to do e-discovery or document review or all these different things um, just like buried for, you know, weeks or months on end in a case or something like that. And, but then they're just like, Oh, well, well, can we let them do like second year work yet? Or, you know, there's just like the, it, there's this reticence of just like, Oh, wait, where, what should we be teaching them? Should we already right. be letting them talk to clients? You know, whereas right. before there was like a lot of gatekeeping where these yeah. technologies are kind of getting rid of that gatekeeping and firm management doesn't seem to know what to do with themselves. Yes, yes, I think that's totally correct. I mean, I have a couple of thoughts to build on that. I mean, the first is this is part of the process that firms are going to need to undertake in order to adapt to the new environment and the new world that we're in, right? I mean just because they don't know what to do doesn't mean there isn't a solution here, right? I think the solution, which is happening slowly, naturally over time anyway, is attorneys are getting more responsibility earlier on, right? Attorneys are no longer doing all this scut work and paralegals no longer need to manage all the cap tables all the time. Instead, you have Carta, right? You have ShareWorks, you have these software startups that have, you know, taken those tasks, tasks away. At the same time, you know, on the point of automation, what do we do with these jobs? Like, at least from my from my experience, it it has seemed very slow and methodical. You know, the sort of transition from work being done by law firms to work being done by these tech platforms, it doesn't happen overnight. Where suddenly the first year class is going to get laid off because <laughs> you know, like LexisNexis has a new tool that does their job for them. It's been much more methodical and slow slow moving than that, which I think is good because it won't be a shock to the system. I think for for anyone, at least you know until. You know, one of these new visionaries comes along and creates some robot AI that can do litigation, complex litigation in like 10 minutes, but then we're all out of a job anyway. So I, I don't, I'm not really worried about that. Um, but I think it's a slow moving process. And to your point about the dues paying, it's true that that culture very much still exists in, in law. Even if the dues paying is different, what I've noticed is that there's still just sort of a mentality of almost like respect in the sense that like, you're not as a junior associate or, or being a lower level, you're not necessarily entitled to all of the time in the world and all of the respect from everyone else, simply because you're, like you said, you know, at the bottom of the totem pole and they went through the same sort of hierarchy at their time, even if the work was different. And so now you're going to be in the same place they were, and they're going to treat you similarly on the hierarchy scale, just by way of a power dynamic, if not for the fact that the work, you know, may have changed. Oh, I totally agree. And I definitely experienced like that myself. And it was just, um, it was a little bizarre. I mean, even in law school, I felt like law school wasn't nearly as difficult as I was expecting. I yeah. thought it was going to be like, oh, every single class is going to be a hundred pages of reading a night and all this stuff. And I get there and they're like, okay, read these 20 pages. And now it's like, okay, those 20 pages are going to take you an hour to read. Right. But I thought it was gonna be like five, you know? And yeah, yeah, exactly. so for me, it was like a really, I just had such lofty, crazy expectations of how difficult it was gonna be that it was like a really underwhelming experience. Whereas I think for a lot of people, especially cause so many kids go in as like K through JDs, you know, a lot of people show up to law school straight out of undergrad. They've never had a job before. So just anyone demanding as much of your time as law school does is like an affront 
to people. And then it just creates this sort of hive mind of like collective anxiety. And then I would see the same thing going into big law. Whereas I was like, you know, I'd been in the army, I'd been to Afghanistan, like I'd done all sorts of stuff. So it was like walking into a big law office was just like, okay, yeah. like, yeah, you're, you put your pants on the same way I do, like, whatever, you know, and so there would always just be friction there, because I would just kind of be like, yeah, I don't think this is like a big deal. And people would just be like, this is a really big deal, know, you know? know, and it would just yeah. like constantly be in that, that kind of conflict and everything and just trying to like, work your way through that. But I mean, to me, it was so much of like the legal industry just relies on the younger, more junior people need to be in awe of what's happening. And it's just like, this is not that big a deal. Let's all calm down. This is fundamentally a service industry exactly. and, and, and a trade. Right. And just because it has elitist connotations does not mean totally. it's not, you know, totally. and I think that's really challenging for some people to like wrap their head around. Um, and then it just sort of like lost its luster for me. And I was just like, this is not, you know, this is not what I thought it was and not, you know, really what I want to do. Totally, totally. And, you know, I, <laughs> I feel like what we're witnessing now and what we're going to continue seeing with so many folks leaving the industry, right? Not, not just leaving big law for in-house, which is of course happening at a crazy rate, but leaving law entirely, right? Folks like me who are for the time being saying, hmm. I'm going to reevaluate and see what else is out there. And I, you know, I have a lot of colleagues from my law school who are doing the same thing. Uh, <laughs> it's almost self-selection over time, right? Like those that are going to stay are going to buy into this outdated belief system. Those that do not buy in, like you and me, are going to leave and we're going to do other things. So it's unfortunate that the field doesn't seem, at least right now, to have a place for a middle ground, right? Or of, of folks who are human beings, like you said, who recognize, look, we're a team, you know, like the client is the client. This is what the client wants, but we are a team, right? Partner, senior partner, junior partner, associate, paralegal staff. We're on the same team, right? And the fact that it doesn't feel like that at a law firm or at any firm in general, sometimes, I mean, come on, <laughs> like, what's the point of all of this, right? I mean, if my pie is bigger, if I build more hours, your pie is bigger, our pie is bigger. That's the whole point, right? And yet it, like you said, there's, there's this, there's this transient feeling of, of ego and elitism that I think distorts people's humanity in our profession. But hopefully, you know, folks like you and me in these conversations, one, one day at a time, you know, can, can shift it. That's the hope, at least. Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, after working at, you know, dozens of companies of all different shapes and sizes and industries, like like you said, like even working in companies with hundreds or thousands of people, it can feel like a team across a variety of levels of management, like no problem. But in a law firm, especially because there's like, right. oh, certain people aren't allowed to do things. Right. right. And then there's like that hierarchy. Right. So there's like a hierarchy within the attorneys. There's a hierarchy within the classes of attorney, like there's hierarchy within the partners, there's hierarchy within the associates, and there's hierarchy between paralegals, other people that work there as support staff. Um, like you see now in California, they're trying to basically allow paralegals to have more like authority and autonomy to do a variety of different tasks. And I just see like groups of lawyers like losing their shit. They're just like, no, we cannot allow, you know, it's like they're breaching the castle yeah. walls. Like the paralegals are coming for us. And right. it's just like, oh my God. You know, and they're like, if they want to be lawyers, like just let them go to law school. And it's just like so much gatekeeping. I mean, I was it's, finishing yeah, law school right. as the pandemic started. So we like in March of 2020, it was just like, okay, all the rest of law school is online. And we're like, okay, we're like two months away from graduation. Like, can we just be done with this? Like, this is, this is stupid. Like we're just showing up here on Zoom. This is a total waste of time. Like nobody's yeah. doing anything. Like the world's falling apart. And, you know, you had certain states like Washington were like, hey, diploma privilege. Yep. You graduate law school, you're good to go. Let's rock. And so we were all up in California. We we're like signed up, you know, take the bar. And it was just like, hey, just just go through a diploma privilege. I mean, there were massive movements because it was just like, you're literally making people go sit in gymnasiums with hundreds of people when it's like a guarantee someone in the room has COVID. And there's just, you know, and it was just like, well, I had to do it. And it's like, you did not graduate law school in a global pandemic. Like, you know, get a hold of yourself. Oh. And 
you know, and plenty of states were like, yeah, you graduated from an ABA accredited law school. Like, come on, you're ready. Let's go. I mean, like, what's the point of ABA accreditation, right? If it doesn't actually matter, <laughs> you know? And then it's like, no, we really care about this exam that has absolutely nothing to do with the practice of law or like how good an attorney you'll be. I mean, there's plenty of shitty attorneys who passed the bar and plenty of people who would have been amazing attorneys who didn't. And we don't actually have a good barometer for actually keeping good people in and bad people out. It's just like, okay, we just have this arbitrary thing. And I think to your point too, we have a lot of people like the people that would be best suited to help change the industry are the ones who leave. They're just like, this is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm out of yeah, here. Totally. I'm going to go find something else to do that totally. like helps the world in a better way. And it is those people just like, no, I'm going to buy in. You know, I want to make people suffer in the future. I'm going to buy into this bullshit system and keep perpetuating right. it. And then it just does. Right. Because like you said, if you're on the outside now, people don't want to listen to you. So what can you do on that side? Well, and, you know, so much of this, too, I feel like a lot a lot of the elements you just spoke of revolve around this theme of of law and, and you know medicine i would say similar my fiance is medicine i have close friends and family who are in medicine too and i hear stories about their industry as well and it very much seems like because we are a guild profession right we have in, in america at least right we created graduate school just for lawyers we created a bar exam right of course that you have to pass to become licensed to practice but we've you know we've raised these walls up to keep everybody else out and what we do with those walls a lot of the time is we allow them to breed <laughs> stasis by way of innovation. We allow them to allow greed to flourish, you know, and not do what's necessarily best for the system or the whole, but do what's best for those on the inside of the wall because we are all inside, you know, on the inside of the wall. Like, you know, specifically, I could go back into big law and make 300 and something thousand dollars a year part of my job was adding Oxford commas to a 200 page document. Okay. Like that's not, something's not working efficiently in our system if that's the case. Right. But it's intentional and it's by design because lawyers, like you said, when there is a proposal that will potentially make being a lawyer less valuable financially, primarily, but in general, less valuable, People are up in arms. Paralegals, oh my God, no. Make them go to law school. Make them do this. Make them do that. Don't let them, do not let them take away what is mine, right? And what I have earned and what is on my side of the wall, which is this title of being a lawyer, but more importantly than the title, in my opinion, is the financial sort of uh, baseline, right? That, that lawyers have earned themselves or granted themselves. I shouldn't say earned, but carved out for themselves in, in at least in our country and to some extent globally too but a lot of it comes back to the simple fact that we've insulated ourselves from the free market you know i mean i i saw things that at my old firm and, and other firms too that there is no way in the private sector generally outside of law that maybe 80 percent of these business practices would, would would be happening i mean little things like our tech and it to cultural things right that you're seeing with toxic firm culture. I mean, these things exist because we have insulated ourselves from everybody else. Mm. And the world, the world yeah. is now moving beyond us, obviously. And that's why the attorneys like me and you are saying, you know, see you later. <laughs> Sayonara. But for those who are staying, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to change the system because the incentives aren't forcing them to change because the clients are still going to pay a thousand dollars an hour for senior partner to do X, Y, Z. And the client has no choice either because they're either going to pay that firm or this firm. So we've literally insulated ourselves from the free market. Oh, absolutely. And that's because, you know, passing the bar, you essentially have a an exclusive monopoly to practice law that anyone else mm -hmm. does that. And like you're going to get in trouble. They're going to get in trouble. And exactly. it's, it is fascinating to me, too, with the rise of all these different, you know, like AI lawyer type technologies is that it's actually has a potential to humanize the profession more because you don't have to do sort of the busy grunt work so much. You actually do more client facing work, which really means like, oh, we need people to be more skilled in negotiation and emotional intelligence and lots of other human and people and quote unquote soft skills that by and large are not taught in law school at all. Right. So like maybe there's one negotiation class. And so, you know, a fifth or a third or something, uh, you know, 
of the student body actually gets to take that when it's like negotiation is like a thing that should be like a required 1L class in my mind, right? right? Like we talk about all these things of, you know, whether it's contracts or torts or whatever. And it's like, well, a bunch of those, like you're probably not even ever going to do, right? And there's hundreds, if not thousands of ways to practice law or use a JD. And most of like what we have is so antiquated in terms of the way we approach teaching it to people. And it's, it's clearly teaching to like, Oh, Hey, this is how to be a good lawyer in 1950. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, that's like not actually what's happening anymore. So why are we still doing this? And then kids get into practice and it's just like, shit, like what's going on. Right. It's like yeah. so much of it. That's why I just look at it as trade school. Yeah. You go and learn legal writing. And after that, you should just be done. It's literally one course for the most part. Everything else you're learning on the job, right? How much does any, the average law student retain from any class in law school, I think is incredibly minimal. And even less so, like once you get into practice, it's like, oh, uh, no, we don't actually have to memorize anything because that's not the way the world works. So why do we teach that on the bar exam? Like, hey, memorize a bunch of useless stuff just to like go through another gauntlet and it just seems like we're not actually preparing people for the real practice of law, which I think is a real disservice to the legal industry, to clients, and of course, to the lawyers involved. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more specifically. I mean, my 3L year was totally unnecessary. Arguably, my 2L year was totally unnecessary. And, it, you know, it, I, I echo everything you said about the curriculum just being totally outdated. And I, I've wondered why, you know, what, why is it like this? And we're paying through the Yazoo for, for this education. Shouldn't it be doing what it's supposed to do, <laughs> which is preparing me for the job. But again, I see this clash of institutionalized interests where the big law firms are saying, hey, you guys need to train your students. And like, we don't want to have to like train people who don't know anything on our dime. Like you should do that. And of course, law schools are like, uh, excuse me, like you don't get to tell us what to do. <laughs> like we tell you what to do. We're the ones with the students. You're hiring our people. I'm not going to listen to you. Meanwhile, the students are just happy to be in law school and to hopefully get a job. So like, we don't really, you know, as, as with most ac- academic spheres, I would say, I don't think students have a huge voice here, unfortunately, or at least not a very powerful one. And the law school, very similar to the law firm, is like, hey, it worked last year. Let's just keep it doing. Keep it going. Let's do the same thing, right? I mean, we're making a lot of money. Our our school's doing well. Why fix what isn't broken, right? Why innovate? We're doing fine. And it's that same sort of stasis that I see of just we're here and we've earned it. And I just don't see a desire to change, so I'm not going to. And of course, who suffers? Well, the whole system, right? Not not necessarily you and me as the students who don't learn anything, although it's yeah. a, little, a little annoying, but clients who have to pay for training us, you know, the law firms that make money when they shouldn't. Uh, the list goes on. All of this results in probably higher costs for goods for consumers, right, on a, on a regular day-to-day basis. And where does the money really go to the pockets of, of law firms and associates too, partners, right? All of us. So. Yeah, it is wild to me because there is this institutional inertia across everything from, you know, the law school side all the way through practice. And I saw, I don't know if it was a tweet or a meme the other day, and it was talking about different first year law classes, and they'll be going through a topic, like say it's CivPro, and they're reading all these cases, and it's like, okay, so this is how the law is. And you're like, oh, okay. And then they're like, but actually, just kidding, that's not the law anymore. It's been superseded, but we just thought you'd like to know it as a fun fact. (laughs) And imagine if med school is like that. Imagine if in med school you go in, you're like, hey, I'm going to teach you how blood transfusions work. But first, we're going to spend a week talking about leeches or some fucking nonsense, right? And why are we doing this to ourselves? If you want to go and take a history of the law class, like, cool, right? But at the same time, if this is supposed to teach people how to practice law, you literally spend an inordinate amount of time filling people's heads with absolutely useless knowledge of, hey, this is how the law used to be 200 years ago. I remember reading cases from like the 1500s and we're like, what are we doing right now? And just illustrate some obscure point. And it's just like, this is just a complete waste of time and is not forward thinking about what's actually happening right now. I mean, because when I was in Irvine, there was a company 
there that I I knew that of them because my advisor or one of my mentors was was an advisor of the company. It's called LegalMation. And they basically just make automated software that companies as big as Walmart use to basically produce work at the level of a first year associate. And so you could have, it could be doing like a request for production. It could make interrogatories. It could make a variety of, you know, the pedestrian kind of first, first year level stuff that, that corporate attorneys would be doing. And I was like, Hey, um, can we talk about this? You know what I mean? It's like not ever mentioned within the confines of law school, right? Of like, hey, this is actually what's going on outside of here. Everyone thinks they're just going to graduate and go practice law and everything's going to be, you know, going to be fine. And it's like, there's a lot of different dynamics affecting this industry right now that don't actually get worked into law school. And I think that's really a huge detriment to law students across the board. Totally. Totally. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I wish it would change. <laughs> it seems that academia as a whole, in some ways, you know, these professors who are teaching things, I was, I was in this venture capital class at Harvard, and the first half of the semester was great. It was hands-on. You know, here's, here's what the NVCA forms for, for corporate law, you know, and venture work, you know, here's what the terms mean, here's what the documents do. And then, you know, me, me and a good friend who both went to the same firm, we were so excited. We're like, this is great. This is exactly what we're going to learn. This is perfect. And then the second, like the second, like whatever, 60% of the class was just like corporations 2.0, which is like, okay, let's read this case about like fiduciary obligations in the Delaware court and like analyze the various arguments. And we're like, none of this is helpful at all. And you got to wonder like, why are these professors focusing on these things? You know, like they know what's helpful and what's not helpful. Like, why do they focus on these things? I can't help but think that part of the problem here is also the path to becoming a tenured faculty at some of these institutions and the whole rigor and process they have to go through for publishing incredibly esoteric and detailed legal analyses and papers and uh, interpretations or what have you that are so in the weeds and, and, and they're, you know, it's important work and it's good work and it needs to be done. Right. And that's all great. But when we focus on those things as opposed to what the actual purpose of school is, which is to teach the students, I think you're going to find this disconnect and not just in law school, but I, you know, in undergrad, I had similar experiences too. horrible teachers, right? Very smart people, horrible teachers beyond just the curriculum being outdated, et cetera, et cetera. Although I know that law school, as we're discussing, the curriculum is already <laughs> a large part of the problem. Oh, totally. That is definitely something I saw in undergrad and not so much in my grad school program, but then definitely in, in law school as well. It's just like having people that, you know, are titans in their field, but not teachers fundamentally, right? right. And it's just like, okay, we're going to throw you in like, yeah, you've got to publish a book every year or every two yeah. years and you've got to teach this many students or something like that. And you get in there and, you know, even people that were like icons that like, they're kind of people like people knew in advance coming into school were like oh my god i can't wait to have this person and then just to find out that they're like not a good teacher is like yeah. such such a come down that you're then just like oh man like this sucks and i think it's not something that is addressed anywhere in academia because it's just not what it's actually incentivized towards right there's nothing like oh hey you need to win a teacher of the year award to stay a professor here. No, it's like, I mean, not everyone could, but it's just, nope, just publish or perish kind of thing. And that's all we care about. And, oh, your students have complaints. I mean, that was the other thing to me is when students would have, at every level of school I've been to, when students have complaints about things that administration just be like, whatever, <laughs> don't care. And these are your actual customers. And it's so divorced from just like free market principles of you better treat your customers well, or yeah you're not going to stay in business, but it's like, no, you get to keep doing whatever you want. And just like law firms can keep treating associates like shit. And you'll just, you know, they're the prestige of going to work for somewhere that's like a sweatshop. That's what you make $190,000 a year. So people are like, shut up. You're making $190,000 a year. People don't actually need to be abused, but then people are like, oh, well, you can't be abused for $190,000 a year. It's like, this is nonsense. You know, at the Where same time, they, they do have a point, right? Like it, it is a trade-off. Right. I mean, and, and we can lament all we want about how it shouldn't be the way it is. But at the end of the day, mm -hmm. if, if that's the offer, that's the offer. Right. We have to accept it. The offer is here's a boatload of cash. 
but also a you know a set of insanely outdated principles of leadership and management and uh, and culture. And that and that's what we get. Not great, but many, <laughs> many like you said would look at that and be like, well, at least you get one hundred ninety thousand dollars a year. So. Oh yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely enough people going along with it that it's going to continue to perpetuate itself until we do get to a point where certain technological innovations just like blow it out of the water right i mean one thing now that sort of prevents that from happening is like there's no avenue for a computer or any type of algorithm or technology or an ai to be authorized to practice law in the united states and so as long as that gate is there there's going to be gatekeepers for it and they're just going to continue to perpetuate the same system yeah totally all you know i will also add the legal tech is definitely doing some disruption, but I've, I've also just seen anecdotally, you know, there's this firm Silicon legal strategy started by one guy, Andre, great guy. And, you know, he left Oric. He was in big law as a partner, went out on his own, had just him and a paralegal and over, I don't remember when they were founded past 10 years or so, maybe longer, maybe a little shorter. They've grown to have multiple offices now and a bunch of attorneys and, you know, multiple partners and associates. And what they're really doing in many ways is sort of like big law light. You know, it's 1350 or so bill blah, blah requirements. It's, you know, lower pay naturally, but also a more humane culture, right? People treat each other like human beings. There's more boundary setting, right? And if you look, you know, and of course that carries over to the cost center too. So they, they charge clients probably, you know, 60, 70% of what big law charges. I don't know the details obviously, but I'm, I'm extrapolating. And yeah, they have seen tremendous growth. Why? Why do you think? Because the companies are like, oh, I could do this. I could get the same financing documents for 30% cheaper. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, sure. Why not? And then associates are like, oh, I could go over there get paid six figures, but know my boss's kid's name and actually talk about things outside of the task that's being assigned to me. Sign me up. <laughs> right. Uh, so I, you know, I'm also interested to see Pacifica just in general, like, the, the big law and the legal work itself, if there's going to be more innovation by way of folks trying to to disrupt the actual process and workflow itself, because it, it's ripe for disruption, right? I mean, it's just it's mm -hmm. so, everything we're talking about, all of it leads to one conclusion, which is this does not last. You know, it's, it's like arbitrage. It's an, it's an ever increasingly small yeah. pie and uh, it's being chipped away by tech. But I think it will eventually also be chipped away by folks like Andre who are going out and, and creating their own versions of firms that are just better. No, I totally agree. And actually, the first person I had as a guest on this show back in episode one, uh, her name is Elizabeth Yang. She's an attorney down in Southern California. And I mean, she graduated. Uh, she graduated Berkeley, like undergrad, when she was like 19 or something, just like super smart, like aerospace engineer, yeah. like worked at like NASA and then went to law school and then started a law firm and then and does also does mediation. She now has like five offices, like four in SoCal, one in Taipei. Right. And one of the things she does is basically choose your own hours. It's just like you come in, you say you want to work a thousand hours, you want to work 1500 hours, you want to work 2000 hours, right? You, you get to decide that. So she'll have mostly younger people with no families will take like massive billable hours to make more money. And then people with families and other just dynamics, and they don't want to do that. They don't want to grind like they'll do like a 1000 hours or 1200 hours a year and just be chilling and just enjoy their life and it's all equal right it's not like there's a yeah. hierarchy of oh you're a person who does this and no everyone is getting compensated relative to the amount of time they're putting in and their seniority or whatever but it's not this sort of world that's created in big law where it's just okay kill yourself for the firm right yes, we right. want you to be a real person and i do think that that is the short term you know next 10 to 20 years i think that is where all the innovation is is like oh yeah. hey uh, have a good boss. Yeah. Let's go and create a healthy work environment, which is sad that that's super Bar. innovative yeah. Yeah, <laughs> in totally. the legal industry, right? It's yeah, like, very, very sad. wait, I don't have to hate my life. Totally. Um, like what right. the hell? But there is so much clamoring for that. Right. And I think we'll see even more of that with like Gen Z and young millennials just being like, it seems like there's a different way to do this. Right. Totally. And I think that's totally been what our generations have been about from the beginning, especially I mean, I'm a elder, like I'm a zennial, you know, I'm right on the cusp there in like 83. So like, I've seen both sides of it. And I'm just like, well, this is 
the way we've been doing stuff is just stupid. We could just yep. do something else entirely. Yeah. Whereas when you're first born into it, it's just, oh, this is just the way everything is. And it's like, no, this is the way it is because decisions were made to get it to this point. This isn't yeah. like the natural state of affairs that like the legal industry has to be like this. But it does take those people stepping out to be like, hey, I want something else. And I'm going to actually just create that rather than sit inside big law and try and change it from within i think is like that takes so long and you have to like basically sit around undercover for like 30 years somehow then become like the managing partner of a firm to actually affect culture change like writ large on that right whereas like if you just go yeah. and make your own place it's like okay yeah now you got your own little fiefdom you can make into a better thing for everyone who works for you totally Totally. No, and I, I totally agree that that's the next, you know, 10 to 20 year time span. We're going to see a lot more action in, in that space. And, you know, these folks like, uh, you know, folks like Andre out there and, and you know, Elizabeth, too, that, that you mentioned, they're laughing their way to the top. You know, like mm-hmm. they're, they're looking at these firms that are that are mistreating people and just using these outdated practices. And they're like, keep keep going, please, because <laughs> the more you do that. The more we grow and the more we grow, yeah. obviously, that's the whole point. So the incentives in the market, I think, will take us there. It's just, you know, like we've been discussing, we're so insulated. It's just delayed from where it should be. You know, we're like 20 to 30 years behind the, the general private sector, at least I would right. argue. Uh, and that's that's just unfortunate. But I, I think it will accelerate hopefully soon. Uh, hope so, too. So tell me, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Ooh, that's a good one. I mean, failure, I would argue, is a state of mind anyway, right? I mean, every what do they say? They say that you the only time you fail is when you give up. That's it, right? Like giving up is failure, nothing else is. So, I mean... I don't, you know, there are many things that I think you could characterize as failures. I didn't get into like the best Ivy League undergrads, even though I tried my hardest, right? Is, is that really a failure? Like, I don't really know. Um, so I guess my answer is kind of a non-answer, which is I don't really think I've ever failed. I think I do what I want to do and I try to play the game in the way that I want to play it. Sometimes I get what I want. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I disappoint myself. Sometimes I do things that I, you know, regret or later look back on with disdain. But as you know, as long as I learn from that and go forward with that knowledge and that perspective, that's the whole process. I mean, you can't fault the process. You can't fault yourself. Just part of life. Mm. Oh, totally. Very non-answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all good. It's a nice, like, uh, waxing philosophic on the on the topic. So I like it. <laughs> so tell me, what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? That's a good question, Pacifico. I so I read Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker, and a good friend from law school put me on put me on this book. Steven Pinker is a you know modern day intellectual, Harvard professor, studied linguistics and a bunch of other stuff. And you know, in, in this book Enlightenment Now, he kind of just takes you through the course of why where we are in human history right now is the greatest point we have ever been at in every mm-hmm. single measure of human existence in life. You know, mm-hmm. health, war violence, food, economics, you name it, right? And you know, I read this earlier this year and it, it was just uh it was a fresh it was just a fresh perspective that I feel like was really needed for someone like me who doom squirrels like 24/7. <laughs> you know, and and especially after last year where it felt like the world was falling apart, right? Um so I highly recommend that. Been reading Promised Land by our former president Barack Obama. Loving that. I mean, fantastic writer and seeing his perspective firsthand, he really just lets you in which is super fun and super cool. And the last one I would say is more of a picture book, but it's uh, it's called Humans by Brandon Stanton. So I don't know if you know Humans in New York, but you know the photographer, he's had a couple of books. One of them, the most recent one is Humans. And it's his, his journey globally, not just New York, but across the world, documenting people's stories, you know, with the photos of them. And, uh, you know, again, it's just very powerful perspectives. You know, in, in each of these three books, there's there's very unique perspectives that I think can help everyone kind of get in touch with parts of humanity that we may not see on a daily basis or even monthly or yearly basis. Mm. That's a great one. So if you could have a gigantic billboard 
anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Uh, that's a really good question. I uh, I would say, did you say where would it be or what would it be? <laughs> uh, you could do any of the above. What would it say and why? I would make it say, take a deep breath. That's it. Black background, white text with a period at the end. And I would put it wherever I think can reach the most people. Because I think that right now we are at a very critical juncture of humanity where life as we know it in many ways has changed forever because of this pandemic. And it's, you know, it's continuing to change because of the pandemic, because of the Delta variant and other things and the uncertainty, right? And technology obviously has evolved and things are changing by the second, right? Basically, I mean, um, and I think people can run away from that all they want. And a lot of people will try to distract themselves from all the changes happening right now. But in the long run, I think what would be healthy for people is to learn how to manage all of the various uncertainties and stressors and changes that are happening and accept it and understand that it's okay if you feel totally destroyed right now no matter where you are or what you are doing it doesn't matter if you're vacationing or you know you've been retired for a year like this sort of uncertainty on the human spirit is natural and it's normal and it's certainly going to get worse before it gets better as, as far as i can tell at least so i just you know I, I i wish folks would just give themselves a little bit of a break and a gentle reminder to take a deep breath would hopefully help them with that oh absolutely it's definitely been a wild ride and it's interesting now sort of being what 18 months in and sort of like um it's probably gonna go for like another 18 months isn't it it's just like you know watching us collectively not get our shit together to actually move beyond this it's been a fascinating study of psychology and sociology and incentives and just you know consistently fucking it up <laughs> in terms oh. of not recognizing the reality on the ground and not properly incentivizing things in the right way or engaging in the right actions that'll get us to where we need to be and uh, yeah it's just it's relentless right <laughs> totally it is absolutely relentless and it I, I think if folks weren't managing this properly from the beginning or middle or even earlier this year when things were looking better, you better learn to manage it soon because mm -hmm. you are not going to be in a good place. And I don't know what that'll look like. You know, it's different for everybody, but nine times out of 10, it looks like destructive behavior one way or the other. Eat, you know, binge eating, alcoholism, drug use, relationship fraying, you name it, right? And I've, I've been there, so I know firsthand what that's like, so... Mm. it's not rough it's, it's not it's not positive and it's it's yeah. a rough time people need to know that so what advice would you give to a smart driven high school or college student about to enter the real world and is there any advice you think they should ignore yeah i think the advice that i would give is don't for a second think that where you're at now or where other people are at now is indicative of the future. I think it's very easy in the younger years to constantly compare and think, oh, I went to this college, they went to that college, so they're going to be more successful, whatever that word even means, <laughs> or they're going to be better, or like, I'm not going to be as good, whatever it is, right? Uh, and I have seen in my life, and of course, people told me this when I was young, but I, it's hard to kind of heed this advice and take it to heart, right? Because it feels like it's your whole world at the time. But I've seen in my friend group how folks who were in the middle of my high school class, you know, great friends of mine who are, who are now going on and becoming doctors, who are you know, crushing it at, at, at companies like Amazon and and doing financially, honestly, better than than me, right? Uh, and well, you know, when I was in law, right, uh, on just a business degree, right, with no with no graduate school, there's no barometer for what's going to happen in the long term. So I would just tell folks to take things one day at a time and explore what they like and work hard, you know, and they don't need to hear that from me. I'm sure they hear that a lot. Advice to ignore. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what advice everyone has heard. So it's hard for me to say what to ignore. I guess I would say don't, uh, don't underestimate how quickly the world is changing economically uh, in the sense that all of the old people telling you, here are the job options that exist in front of you, right? All, all, all of your, even to some extent, your peers maybe who are saying, you know, what are you going to do with that degree? Are you going to do this job or that job? 
Well, guess what, guys? We're in 2021, an era where you can dance on your iPhone in your bedroom and over the course of a year become a multimillionaire, right? You can upload videos of you pretending to have a seagull talk to you and the seagull, you know, you feed the seagull food every day. I don't know if you've seen this guy on TikTok, but he does this. You can become a multimillionaire doing that in six months. Okay, like the world, and, and this is right now, but in five years and 10 years, I can't even tell you what the world is going to look like economically and how value is going to be generated. What I can tell you is that if you ignore all of these changes and if you only insulate yourself and look at the one you know vision that you have of your career, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this job and this job and this job, you're going to miss out on what is really a gold rush right now of content creation in the digital era. And it's only going to get you know closer and closer to that over, over time. So you may be dragged into it whether you want you know, want to be or not, but don't underestimate the power that you guys have with your phones and, 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 you know, your personalities, the world's getting better and better at optimizing what we can create. And soon enough, that'll be the thing that brings in the money, not helping someone with illegal, you know, paperwork or treating a patient at the hospital. Although if you want to do those things, then by all means do it because you should always do what you want have fun and enjoy your life. Mm, couldn't agree more. Well, Julian, this has been such a fun and fascinating conversation, but it does bring me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Hmm. I would say it was my fiance. When I was accepted into Harvard, she broke down crying on the other end of the phone because she was genuinely so happy for me. I mean, she had seen me struggle throughout college. She had seen me burn myself out my one all year. And she knew deep down how badly I wanted that sort of validation from an Ivy league school. And I mean, she was crying more than me <laughs> and, and not in a, not in a dramatic and emotional way. She's very much not like that. She, she, you know, she'll tear up, but only when it's very tasteful and when it matters. And, uh, you know, in many ways I felt that she was happier for me more so than I was happy for myself and I could feel it. Uh, so there's nothing sweeter than that, really, you know, nothing kinder than that. Oh, that's a beautiful story. I love that. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Julian. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Thank you for having me, Pacifico. Great being on. Oh, love it. So today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, specializing in making stunning videos to help you win more customers and look your best online. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn how they create unforgettable videos for unforgettable companies. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Mm -hmm.